Welcome to the Writer Dojo with your host, Steve Diamond. I'm back. And Larry Correa. That's no moon, it's a space station. Today's episode, The Importance of Character. All right, everybody, welcome back to the Writer Dojo. Glad to have you back with us. When we're recording these episodes, it's either, well, at least for me, really, really early or really, really late. Yeah, we're, uh, we're still at LibertyCon, and we've been doing, uh, our voices are shot, we've been talking nonstop, uh, we've been grabbing guests out of the hall at 9 a.m., which for con time is insane, because you go to bed at 2. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, uh, for those of you who don't know, I just don't do mornings. Me and mornings are bitter, bitter enemies, a long Sunrise. story rival. Sunrise is the perfect ending to a productive day. Yep. There we go. <laughs> I woke up. I woke up seven minutes ago. There we go. All right. Today, you know, we've had a lot of we've had a lot of, of great guests on the show today, but to or, or on the show, you know, over the past several weeks um, that we've recorded, you know, within the past several days. Uh, that's that's the the beauty and the magic of of pre recording podcasts. Uh, but today we have a very special guest, uh, someone who is, uh, you know. A legend in the in all of the communities, uh, in all of the communities, and so David Weber, thank you so much for agreeing to be abducted and taken into uh, into this undisclosed location. We appreciate it. Well, thank you. I, I should point out that among the other places, I am a legend, according to Sharon, is a legend in his own mind. There we go. <laughs> you are standing in your field. Absolutely. <laughs> I've, known, I've known David for 10 years, about, and uh, so I'm really glad to have you on the show, David. We're, we recorded our 100th episode this week. Oh my goodness. And uh, had a lot of guests on, but you are probably the the, the biggest guest we've had on the show. But for I'm sure. trying to lose weight. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's actually, I didn't even mean that way. I, I'm too tired to be to be like 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 pithy, you know, because we've had Dave Butler on the show, and Dave makes me look short. So, uh, and and no, so Dave, I think, is our biggest guest, because um, <laughs> he's like six ten or whatever. Yeah. So, no, yeah. no, but thank you for coming on, David. We're much appreciated. I'm glad to be here. Well, we thought today, you know, we we were kind of chat, chatting before the show, you know, what did we want to talk about? We always, well, we always ask our guests. You know, what are you passionate about? What What's important to you, either overall or right now, that, that you really want to chat about? And when we, when we asked David this question, he said, you know, man, I, I think the importance of character. And, and why is that, David? Why, why is that on your mind right now? Well, in, in terms, actually, I hadn't thought about this until you, you cued me here, because I was thinking in terms, and I still am primarily, in terms of using characters and building characters in stories. But there's a second side to it, and that is character singular, which is hugely important to me, oh. both in the characters and in my own life, oh. the lives of the people around me. Sure. Okay. And I really hadn't thought about that until the, the, the cue here just now reminded me of it. So let me approach individual character as a quality in terms of characters and building characters for stories. Absolutely. Okay. The first thing about that a storyteller has to understand is that any story you tell 
is about the characters in it. There's no other excuse for telling a story. A story may be an allegory. You may have a lesson that you want to teach. There may be a, a cautionary story, a warning you want to issue. So the story can have a purpose without characters, but it will not have a right to exist, in my opinion, without characters. Characters are what audiences, whether they're readers, whether they're, they're moviegoers, whether they're, they're video game players, mm -hmm. okay, characters are who they care about in the storyline that they're looking at. If you don't have a character who's believable, and one with whom the, 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 the audience, the reader in my case, so let's just stick with reader for our audience term, um, with, with whom that, that reader can empathize, can believe in, then you don't have a story. Okay? You can have a story about staving off apocalypse, and if nobody cares about the characters in it, it's like ho hum, they saved the world. Yep. Yeah, I've seen that. I've had that art with uh, arguments with writers before, where they'll have like a you know uh, try to put a polite way to put this a measuring contest with other writers of who has destroyed more stuff. I was like, I've destroyed more planets, I, and I'm like, you know, the most visceral human reaction I've ever gotten on my readers is I had the dog die. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, it doesn't. You can kill bazillions, but if they don't oh. matter to the reader, they oh don't gosh, matter. you know, in 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 our book *Servants of War*, one of the one of the things that people are often point at it's a scene where a woman gets her hair shaved off. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Well, I know that. Okay, so I had a concussion a few years ago in Atlanta and it took me two years to get started writing again and then I got in about 18 months, two, two years of writing, got a couple of good books out then I had COVID and spent 10 days in the hospital and you know getting back up and running again. The first con that I went to that I was doing a reading at after the COVID, uh, I was reading the first chapter of, um, of Into the Light, mm -hmm. my collaboration with Chris Kennedy and I'd never read it aloud before. And I could hardly make it through the chapter because of the way my voice was breaking. The scene is a father in a refugee camp. It's raining, it's night, he can tell there's snow coming. Uh, he's, he's poking up this, this fire, which is too small. Uh, the, the, the entire planet's been invaded by aliens, you know. And he's lost his 17-year-old son to one of the strikes. And his five-year-old daughter, he can hear her coughing behind him. And he knows she has pneumonia and there's nothing he can do about it. And he's got to somehow, he's a father. He's supposed to fix this and he can't do it. And he knows he can't. And yet he has to somehow, he knows he's going to. And his wife has, has their little girl in her arms and she's hugging her. And he can hear her singing lullabies. And he can't decide whether the best thing is for the little girl to never wake up again mm -hmm. or for him to have one more chance to try and be strong for her. Okay, <clears throat> when you build a scene and the characters reach out to you as the writer, mm -hmm. you know you've done it right. But the thing is, if you don't care about your characters, you cannot make the reader care about your characters. You have to be invested in that character. You have to understand that character. You have to know who that character is. When I build a character, people have complained, 
He has so damn many named characters in his book. <laughs> That's because I won't have a character who's going to be in there for more than three or four, you know, the lieutenant says, without having a character behind the lieutenant. And I, when I create that character, I may jot down just a very few notes, like hair color, eye color, you know. That's continuity editing, okay? I'll give him or her a quirk, sort of a hook that I can, I can remember that character by. And then, boom, they go into my character list, and if I need to come back to them, I can. Among other things, it's something like the Honorverse. It gives you a really deep bench for other characters that you... And since the casualty rate in the Honorverse has been <laughs> a little high, you know, I've needed replacements from time to time. Yeah, that bench gets played. <laughs> but but the, the, the main thing about characters is... If I have created a character properly, I do not have to ask myself what that character will do in a given situation. Mm -hmm. Because I know what that character will do. Yeah, the suggestion is obvious. Yeah. If, if know, they're a real person. You present it to them and there it goes. It's also, characters, characters can say a lot about the author who created them. Because it's really difficult for an author to disguise who he thinks are the admirable characters in his own books. So in that sense, you start getting into the issue of character within the character. Okay. Okay, what makes a character a good guy in this writer's approach? Okay. Uh, and it took me a while, not an enormous time, but a while, to realize that the common denominator uh, in the good guy characters in David Weber writing is a sense of responsibility. Um, somebody like an Honor Harrington, if they see a problem, it's their job to fix it whether they created the problem or not. If they can, they will. Okay, And they also take responsibility for their own actions. And most of my villains are the people who don't, okay? And especially the ones who don't for reasons of personal gain or advantage. Uh, those are the scum of the earth to me. Now, by the same token, you have to pay, play fair with your characters, okay? If you've created a character and you understand why this character is doing something despicable, all right? You have to not say, well, he's doing it because he's despicable, okay? He's doing it because of this aspect of his character that makes him despicable. Yeah, we, we call it the mustache-twirling evil, where the guy is just bad just to be bad because the plot needed a guy to be bad. Exactly. Sharon's favorite example is a fanfic that she was handed decades ago. And it's got this guy in it, and he's the, the leader, you know, the evil overlord type. And he, he like, he's raped his second-in-command's wife, you know, and everything else. And Sharon says, well, why did they follow him? And the person who wrote the story says, because he's charismatic. <laughs> and Sharon said, wait, <laughs> how is he charismatic? I haven't seen anything in here that shows that he's charismatic. Well, he is. He's charismatic. That's why they follow him. I'm like... You know, that may work for you as the writer. It ain't going to work for anybody who reads the story. No yeah, that way. needs to actually be in the book. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I, not only that, but you, you can't just tell the writer because he's charismatic. 
You have to demonstrate charisma. You got to show that. Okay, because otherwise, we're going to say, I don't care what you thought. <laughs> yeah. You may be the writer, but this dude ain't charismatic. We've talked about that on the show. We call it like the theory crafting, where people will take like a bad movie. Yes. But they like they like the movie enough to, they, to justify the plot holes. They're like, well, it was probably this and this and this. And we're like, Dude, that wasn't in the movie. They generate a whole set, yeah. like a whole, a whole like side sequel yes. to yeah. justify the existence you, you, you of the movie. You a whole extra forty-five <laughs> minutes of script onto this movie that's not there to justify the plot holes. But like writers, we 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 get one shot. Oh yeah, yeah. Did, did you ever did you ever read uh, Steve Sterling's Draca novels? A long time ago. Okay, well he got into a world of trouble when he first put him out as a white supremacist dream, you know, kind of thing because of the nature of the Draca. Because the Draca, in many respects, many of the characters were admirable people. Okay, but what Steve had done, and it's obvious, at least anybody who knows him is he had taken the worst villain he could think of, the worst, you know, this this genetically, by the time you get to the end, superior race that regards everybody else, you know, they're, they're, they're basically apex predators and everybody else is the herd, okay, kind of thing. But he played fair with them internally. They could still be good parents within the lights of their moral system. And as a writer, you have an obligation to do that, even if the people that you're writing about are not very nice people. Right. Okay. Um, well, Hitler loved his dog. Well, he did. As far as, <laughs> as far as I can tell, most of the people in Hitler's inner circle liked him a lot. Okay. Yeah. Um, so even, like, like, that's another thing, too, is, um, I mean, people can be bad guys, and they can be evil dudes. That doesn't mean that every single thing about them is evil, and people will get mad at you, but that's not, I mean, that's not human nature. No, it's not. Well, let me, there's something there I want to come back to, but um, how many of, you know, how many people have read uh, The Boy in the Striped Pajamas? Yep. Okay. Okay, think about the father in that book. He's the commandant of the extermination camp. Okay, but he's a loving father. He loves his son, you know, the whole nine yards. But his son has made friends with the boy in the striped pajamas. And he goes with him when he goes into the oven. Neither one of them realizes that's where they're going. But he goes with his friend because he wants to visit him, you know, kind of thing. And the father's personnel wind up gassing and then cremating his son. And he never even finds the body. Okay, that is an incredibly compelling story. It was assigned to my kids uh, for for reading material. And I was at, I think at an appropriate point in in their lives. But in part, it's the humanity of the monster that makes that work. Mm-hmm. Okay, it's a, it's a very profound book. It's disturbing, but it's but it but it but it's but it's good. Uh, the other thing that I was going to say, though, is that it, I, it, in my opinion, it's important that, and I write military science fiction, okay, so this, I'm coming at this from a military mm-hmm. perspective. We're not going demon hunting here, you know. Kind of, oh, man. Uh, most, most demons are probably not very redeemable. You know, they have very few, you know. I say that, I say that, but I. Redeemable traits, you know. I wrote Monster Hunter Nemesis. <laughs> yeah, well, that's true. That's true. <laughs> I was I forgot about. Fun. I mean, there are there <laughs> yeah. are. He's a special case. Yeah, and that's you know? and that's the thing. A lot of times, well, let's be fair too. A lot of times, we're writing about the outliers because yes. we're writing about. That's what makes the books interesting. Yeah. We're writing about the special cases, the oddities. 
Well, or but what it's I would, a point what of view I'm issue. Say is it's important, especially if you're going to write military fiction, that not everybody on the other side is evil. Yep. Not everybody in the German army in World War II was a Nazi. Okay. Uh, not everybody in the Confederate army in 1863 was a slave owner. Okay. And there are going to be people who are doing their best within the hand they got dealt, but who are decent human beings, who are trying to remain decent human beings. For my money in the Honor Harrington universe, the character who accomplishes the most is not Honor Harrington. I mean, she accomplishes a lot, you know. But for my money, the character who actually accomplishes the most is Thomas Theismann. <laughs> because he's the one who overthrows the, the dictatorship. He's the one who, instead of taking power himself, reinstates the Constitution. He's the one who refuses to become president. He'll be minister of war. He'll support the new president. He'll make damn sure the Constitution stands. But that's his job. That's what he's setting out to do. And I gave him a really tough road to hope. Okay, and yeah. he was—he got drafted for that role in the second book in the series. I knew who he was going to be at that point. That's the George Washington slash Cincinnati. Exactly. Yeah. That's exactly who he was going to be. And those are the characters who, in many respects, I think are most compelling. Now, I, and I am not trying to downplay Honor Harrington in the Honor Harrington series one bit. <laughs> uh, I mean, she's uh, she's turned into an incredible character. Um, I thought I did a pretty good job with her starting out, but after I'd agree. I can't remember how twenty books, twenty seven, something like that. Uh, she's grown a lot, um, and I think I did a pretty fair job of making her growth acceptable and believable. All right. Um, before we kind of continue our conversation with David and 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 listen to this, I'm I'm just I'm just sitting here all fascinated and and having a great time i i I love listening to david talk so this is fantastic um we're gonna take a quick break we come back we'll we'll continue on we'll uh maybe we'll hit some nuts and bolts on on how on how you you ply your trade david all right we'll be right back a young wizard's apprentice sent on a perilous mission a band of mercenaries paid a fortune in gold to protect him their mission Deliver a secret artifact to a king halfway across the world, and from the outset, they are being hunted. Herman P. Hunter presents The Wizard's Stone, available at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, the Apple Store, and more. Buy it today. All right, everybody, welcome back. Um, uh, It it turns out that, uh, that producer Jack has Larry and I timed extremely well. For when uh, when we when we go to break and stuff, we you know we use our our infamous dog clicker, so to speak, as we say, and and then Larry and I hack our lungs out, uh, and everybody in the room laughs at us. So, uh, all right, look, we're we're back. We're here with David Weber. Thank again, and thank you so much for being with us, David. Uh, in the first half, I, I was I was you know listening, just all compelled by by what you were saying. I'm. And, and I'm as I was holding the gun on you. It's true. <laughs> but I mean, it was a nice gun. Um, 
but no, and 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 I find as as you're speaking and as you're talking about the way that that you look at character and develop character, it's it's very similar to the way that that I aspire to do it. And now, a lot of our listeners are are very new to this whole thing, to writing. Many of which are are either crafting their first story or have just made their first short story sale. So for you, nuts and bolts. Where do you start? Well, okay, I'm actually, uh, we're looking at a, uh, a video series uh, that uh, may very well wind up being hosted through Bang. Okay. Uh, and uh, among the, the, the first sequence, the first series of videos will be specifically on character building. Nice. And there are pillars that I think of when I'm, when I'm building a character, okay? The first is, is character function. What is the purpose of this character in the story that you're telling? Because that's going to determine who you need that character to be. Okay? Mm -hmm. uh, the, the second point is, is where did this character come from? When you begin to build this character, what's the character's origin point? Okay? So you need this character to be a great military leader. Okay? What was this character's family like when he was growing up? What was the situation, the social, the economic, the political situation that he came out of? You need to know that. Even in this character, characters should not, in my opinion, spring from your brow full grown like Athena, okay, from the brow of Zeus, all right? Yeah. And you may have a character you throw into a book because you need somebody here to be this, and you just throw a name in, okay? But then you have to stop. You have to think about who's behind that name, who that, that function is, if this is going to be one of the substantive characters in your book, in your story. So you have to think about the origins of the character. Then you have to think about what influences shaped this character after the origins. Okay, is, is this character, uh, when you're thinking function, okay, is this character going to be the physician who comes up with the cure for the plague, you know, that is ravaging the entire planet? Or is this character going to be the triage physician who has to decide who doesn't get a chance to live because he's too far gone and then has to tell the family why their loved one is not going to get the treatment that might save that person's life, okay? You're putting some heavy burdens on, who, on that character. And maybe you want that character to break under the strain, okay? Maybe you don't want that character to break under that strain. You have to think about that when you're building that character. What's going to give him or her the strength not to break? Or what is going to be the element in that character that causes the break when it comes? And you have to know that because if you don't know that, you can't reveal it to the reader or not reveal it to the reader but have it in there. And because you have it, your character is consistent. Mm-hmm. Char readers can sense consistency in a character even if they don't know exactly why that character is being consistent one way or another. 
Yeah, it feels incongruous when you break it. They they know, uh, the reader senses it kind of on an instinctive level that you've gone against the character nature. Exactly. And, and sometimes you can do that, and sometimes you can do that, and then explain to the reader why this character had to go against who the character was, what factors compelled or convinced that character to go this other way. But after you've, after you've established you know, where the character came from, and, and you're, you're well on the way to building who the character is, okay? But you have to play fair with the character. You have to, you have to, you have to, like I said earlier, you have to care about the character, okay? But you have to let that character be the character you've built. And if you need the character to do something in a story and that character that you've built wouldn't do it or wouldn't react that way, then rather than just forcing it, you have to think about, well, do I need to go back and change the character? Or, and if it's a good, strong character, more likely, change the story. How this character was going mm-hmm. to react at this point? Yeah, because if you're at a point where the character has evolved enough that you're like, no, this guy would not do that. That means you've already put in, put enough effort into that character that he's a person. Mm-hmm. So going back and tweaking that's going to ruin a lot more than just like taking the story in the direction of this guy would do this. Yes, exactly. And if it's plot like absolutely necessary, that thing has to happen. Yeah. Provide some other way for that to happen. And see, especially now, I write series. But I think, you know, God bless Jim Bain, you know. Uh, <laughs> yeah, indeed. <laughs> he, like like 25 years ago, he said, 30 years ago, he said, you know, everything you write spawns sequels. What about, like, I don't know, planning a series, you know? And I was like, <gasps> what a novel concept. And we were, we were off to the races. But especially in a longer series, the characters become your collaborators. Mm-hmm. Okay, they have to. All right, um, and and they're going. And the other thing you have to bear in mind as the writer is, no matter what you put into that character, every single reader is going to perceive that character differently through their own personal their reader own lens, personal right? Experience. Yeah, yeah. Okay, um, it, it's it's kind of like um, I'm I'm my kid's father. Okay, I'm my wife's husband. Um, I'm somebody else's mentor, teacher, you know, and, and you're a different character, a different person to all those people because they have a slightly different relationship with you. Now, there are probably, unless you are a multi-personality sociopath, there are going to be I'm things sitting that right they here, all David. Said, well, my secret and is so am I. Yes, and but, so am I. But, but unless, uh, you know, unless you have that kind of a disassociative personality, all right, there are going to be some really strong common traits that are go- everybody's going to say, okay, well, that's part of who he is. He talks a lot. Okay, it's David, all right? <laughs> um, but the, 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 the nuances are always going to be there that are going to make you a different person. Honor Harrington is a different character to every person who has ever read an Honor Harrington novel, okay? And that's partly because I've done my job right, all right? Um, but the, the nature of, of what we do is such that the, the characters that we become involved with dictate, in some respects, where we can take the story. We can take the macro wherever we want, 
but the micro, which is what's really compelling to the reader, can't go somewhere the characters won't go. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes you have to do things in a story. All right. This was actually, in some respects, character-driven. It was driven in terms of having to open a window into Honor's character and her response. And I didn't know why I had to do it the first time around. For anyone out there who hasn't read the Honor Harrington novels, this will be a spoiler, so don't listen for the next few seconds. But uh, there's a, a chapter in one of the books where uh, I kill her chief armsman, Andrew LaFollette. He's been with her for 20 years. Um, he, he has not had, he doesn't have prolong. So he's going to live a maximum of about 80 years. She's had prolong. She's going to live 300, 350 years. Okay, physically she's younger than he is, even though she's a good 40 years older than he is. Um, he's devoted to her. He's her chief bodyguard. He's risked his life for her dozens of times. She knows the reason he's never married is because he's actually not just you know, he's never said a word about it, but she knows. Mm-hmm. Okay. And she has made him her newborn son's armsman to keep him away from her because all of her other armsmen, original armsmen, have died in, in combat or in assassination attempts. And she's desperately trying to keep him safe. Okay. And he's realized that that's one of the reasons that she's done this. All right. And he dies saving her son's and her mother's life. Okay. Now, the way that he does it, I could have gotten him out too. I could have saved his life. And I tried writing that book four times, five times without killing him, and it didn't work. And I didn't know why. And the reason it didn't work, I realized when I finished it and sent it off to Tony. Okay. The reason it didn't work is that in the same attack, where he saves her, 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 her son and her mother. What's happening is they have uh, deorbiting debris from a huge space station. And they're too close to one of them coming in and it blows the air car out of the air. And he has time to punch the two of them out, but not to bail out himself. Um, the same, the same uh, debris strike creates a tsunami that takes out the major city near her home. It kills 90% of her family. Okay. And it's a large extended family. Mm-hmm. But the reader had never met most of them. Okay. So when I want to show the extent to which this just shatters honor, I need a window that will let the reader in. And you know exactly how much, how much Andrew meant to her. So through her pain at losing him, you can extrapolate to the pain of losing everybody else that she grew up with kind of thing at the same time. I didn't realize that that was why Andrew had to die in that, in that scene. But it, was, it didn't go to action. It went to the characters involved and in how you explore and deal with characters. So, okay. we're good. Okay. Um, and once you've 
let's see, so you do character, you do pillars, you do treat, treat them fair, you care about them. I think also if you expect readers to be invested in characters, by and large, you have to treat the character with respect in terms of how that character lives or dies. Um, for example, going back to Andrew for a moment, um, Honor knows that if God had called Andrew LaFollette on the phone and said, you got to die doing something, there is no way in hell that isn't exactly what he would have chosen to die doing. Okay, I mean, he, he made the decision to get them out and he knew he'd gotten them out before he died. And she knows, okay, that was absolutely the appropriate end for it. So does the reader, okay? Now, you're writing military fiction. Sometimes it doesn't work that way. And there's a scene in uh, Shadow Saganami. Uh, Ranhild Pavlidic is a, a, a midship woman. She's brilliant pilot. She's looks like she's 12. She's got prolong, you know, the whole nine yards. And she's, uh, they're, they're doing a routine uh, board and search a freighter. And they don't know when they get ready to board and search this freighter that this freighter is actually a slave ship, even though it doesn't have any slaves on board now. But the slavers know that the policy of the Royal Manticoran Navy is that slavers are pirates and as such subject to execution. And one of them is on the list. He's already been caught and released once, okay, kind of thing. So here's this, you know, this pinnace that's making the flight, it's coming over. Uh, Ranhild is thinking about, you know, the Marine who's in charge. Is, you know, she's gotten to know him a little bit on the cruise, and he's really cute. He's a Marine. He's not a Navy guy. So, yeah, I can <laughs> hang with him. It'd be okay. It'd be kind of cool. And she says, wait, well, what's that? And what it is is a point defense cluster training out. And it wipes the pinnace away. Bap! Nobody saw it coming. Nobody on the ship. Nobody anywhere, and she's she's gone. Okay, and she's a character the reader cares a lot about. And there are other characters in the book who are like her her friend uh, Helen Zawicki, who's like cleaning her locker out. And she goes down, and she she can't. I mean, she's just she's kneeling there on the deck beside the foot locker, and she can't do this. Okay, and this guy that she's been didn't like at all when they first met. But she's begun to figure out why he seems so aloof and so forth, and they've become friends. And he comes, and she's there, and she looks at him, and she says, I can't, I can't. And he says, he says, she was your friend. Of course you can't. And so he goes down, and he puts his arm around her, and he says, we'll do it together. Okay? So I'm with, the, with those two characters, I'm showing who they are. But I'm also showing you, you know what? In war, shit like this happens, okay? It happens to you in real life, too. But, it's, it, but you, that kind of senseless, okay, this person just doing his or her job, just walking along and zap, they're gone. I know I've done my job when, I, as, as the writer, I, I tear up when I write the scene. Uh, but also when years later, readers still come up to me and they're like, dude, why? Yeah. You know, yeah. not so-and-so. And that, 
because then you you approximated reality in real life and that feeling of like oh man Keith Lommer when he created the bolos I love those okay I think in some ways Lommer never really realized what he'd done okay um, I, initially the bolos like he needed he needed a big nasty tank so he built one and he is gloriously uninhibited by anything remotely resembling continuity in his in his Bolo <laughs> yeah, stories. Yeah. Uh, I tried to give some continuity yeah. to it with Bane by publishing the technical history of the Bolos, you know, writing it. I wrote it for me. And Tony was like, oh, can we include this too? So I said, okay. But the thing about the Bolos is that the Bolos, it's all about character for the Bolos. Yes, they're the super tanks. They're this, they're that, they're the other. But it's the decisions they make, okay? And it's the fact that they're better than the humans that they are defending really deserve, okay? Um, and, and again, character-driven. That's why you care about the super tanks, okay? Yeah. Um, and I think that it's possible to construct a story that isn't character-driven, but only if the characters in it are an integral part of where it's going. And by that, what I mean is you can design a story like uh, Staving Off Apocalypse, in which the story is driven by the threat of the colliding planet or the asteroid coming in or whatever. That's what's driving the story. But what's driving the the reader, what's compelling the reader, is the, how the characters are responding to that outside driving factor, that is 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 the the the, the mechanism of the plot. Um, I had a lot of bones to pick with Star Trek: Next Generation, including why they didn't take out the Borg cube by just beaming ten pounds of antimatter aboard, since they were sending boarders aboard every time you turned around. You know, yeah. I was like, I bet their personal shields wouldn't have worked against that. But they had a character, Tasha Yar, who was a problem for them because the writers never understood Tasha Yar. They didn't know what to do with her as the tough-as-nails security type, and they just... They, it wasn't Denise Crosby's fault. It was the writer's fault, okay? <laughs> I, would, I would argue that Star Trek The Next Generation had no idea how to deal with strong female characters, really. They just said, okay, there's a female character. She's going to be strong. Good. Let's go. Boom. So they... They killed Tasha Yar off in, was it the face of evil, the skin of skin of, I can't remember. But yeah. she basically dies absolutely pointlessly. It's just I killed her to demonstrate that I could, you know, kind of thing. And also because we don't know what to do with the character, boop, we're gone. And they betrayed the character first by not building her properly, not knowing how to handle her, not really understanding what was driving her, but also just tossing her away that way, Okay. But then they did yesterday's Enterprise, all right? And there's the scene where Guinan, they're in this alternate history because they fell through another one of those wormholes that's just litter space in, in Star Trek. with them. Okay, and, and well, the, and the Enterprise, whatever it's Enterprise C or the, the, the one that the Romulans destroyed earlier, you know, it comes through the, comes through the, the, the wormhole. And everything changes, and all of a sudden the, the Enterprise D is this incredible battleship, you know, blah blah blah. But Guinan's still there, and so and she's like, so is Tasha, and she's like, meets Tasha, and she says, 
you're not supposed to be here. And and Tasha is, what are you talking about? She says, she says, I don't know, but you're dead. You're supposed to be dead. And she says, well, how, you know, how did I die? She says, I don't know, but I know it was meaningless. Okay. And so she's told this character this. And then when, when the Enterprise, they've got to send it back because it has to fight and die defending the outpost so that they have the alliance with the Klingons instead of being at war with the Klingons. And the crew has volunteered to go back. Tasha volunteers to go back with it. And Picard is like, Tasha, they're all going to die. And she says, I'm supposed to be dead already. And if I'm going to die... I want my death to mean something. Mm -hmm. So she goes back. And they, they all of a sudden, they have redeemed themselves where that character is concerned. Then they turn right around and screw it up again with that whole Romulan half-daughter. But the problem was that they had Crosby under contract for like several more episodes. Oh. And so they had to write, you know, <laughs> write it in. But that's, uh, that's um, you know, that, that was... Horrible, horrible character uh, treatment in the original Tasha Yar. Well, sometimes you can learn from what not to do, and the moments of greatness in there. Oh yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah. I've oh, trust me, I have so learned things to not do by doing them. Okay, <laughs> that whole burned hand thing, you know. Yeah, yeah trust me. All right, as much as we would love to have our 30-minute episode be a three-hour episode with David. Uh, and it very well could easily be. Um, all, all three of us are on an event. We're all minutes. literally <laughs> on an event. Well, it's a coffee clutch, and so I'm going to sit there while, you know, opposite freaking David Weber and Larry Korea. Come on, man. <laughs> but, uh, but no, it, uh, David, thank you so much. It's been thank an honor, me. no pun intended, uh, and, and privileged to have you here with us. Thank you so much. Um, but, uh, yeah, you know, if you've ever, you know, in the neighborhood, drop by, you know. Oh, man, this this will not be the last time we uh, we Shanghai you onto this show. <laughs> we, man, we love you to death. That's because you don't really know me. Or maybe we know you too much. <laughs> um, all right. Well, that's it for you. That's all the time we have for you today, everybody. Thank you, listeners, for tuning in. Uh, this is the Writer Dojo. We'll see you on the next one. Writer Dojo is Steve Diamond and Larry Correa. Produced by Jack Wilder and Bear and Hair Studios. Theme song, Word Mercenaries by Craig Nivo. New episodes come out every Wednesday wherever you stream your content. If you enjoyed this podcast, you can help support us by going to anchor.fm slash writer dojo, by leaving a five-star rating and review, and by helping to spread the word. To advertise on the Writer Dojo, email ads at writerdojo.com. All questions and comments can be emailed to questions at writerdojo.com. He has so damn many named characters in his book.